Ah, oh, Dan, Bob Barker, you know that old host of The Price is Right? He he died this week. Uh, okay. Listen, you know, I haven't really noticed. I've been busy because the writ has dropped. It's like, it's finally here, man. It's the election, October the 3rd. Uh, writ is dropped? Yeah, it's language uh, from the old uh, British legislative tradition. It happens when a leader uh, of a governing party in a uh, parliament uh, in Manitoba's case, that's Premier Heather Stephenson, goes to the Queen's uh, representative, in this case, our Lieutenant Governor Anita Neville, and asks her to dissolve the government and issue uh, a writ of election so that the people can vote. It's, you know, not anything but really the preparation of documents uh, that officially dissolve the parliament and activate the election. But, you know, we've come to say dropping the writ, and it, it really means drawing it up. So nothing is really dropped, but it, it, I guess it sounds dramatic. Hey, uh, how are elections held in Indigenous communities? Okay, that's simple. It's grandmothers. Uh, grandmothers? Oh, well, not all Indigenous communities are the same, of course, but in Ojibwe culture, there's a series of meetings where everyone gets to speak about who they think should be the leader of the leaders or uh, the spokesperson of the chiefs, what's often called a grand chief, because we got hundreds of chiefs. Uh, at all these meetings uh, sits a council of grandmothers from across the community, and after they listen to all the speeches, the grandmothers then hold a big council to determine who should be the leader. Uh, then they call a big gathering together where the grandmothers then very dramatically walk over and pick their choice. And then they walk around the community and everyone stands, sings, honors uh, the new leader of the people. How is that anything like dropping a writ? Well, it's more like dropping the mic. Oh, oh by the way, uh, this is also how we remove leaders. If a leader isn't doing a good job or serving the people, uh, the grandmother council can just meet and remove the leader at any time. Man, can you imagine if grandmothers chose the leaders in Manitoba and had the power to remove them? We'd probably live in a better place. Well, we'd certainly know when people like Bob Barker died. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Nigan and the Lone Ranger are back, but we look different. Uh, you got a haircut, man. What, like, what's going on with that? That's it. Uh, it's election season and completely opposite to what it's like during playoff season. Indigenous peoples, uh, we cut our hair. Instead of growing a playoff beard, you get a, a, an election haircut. That's right. We, we have to clean up during this time. It's a very dangerous time. I'm okay. Well, uh, add that to the list of things that I still don't understand. Actually, it was just time. I was I grew my hair during the pandemic. And and uh, and so uh, for a lot of reasons, I kept meaning to get it cut and then just eventually went back to the old look. So here I am. And uh and let me tell you, my head is a lot lighter. Yeah, well, it's it's a lot lighter too because I'm sort of noticing, yeah, I'm noticing some trends with the hairline now that I maybe didn't uh, see before. Okay, okay, enough. Best enough. Be, be, You're not allowed to make that. any more comments at this point. I'm, so, I'm glad uh, we have a podcast versus yes, a TV show. No, no, for sure. Uh, and Bob Barker, uh, before we came on, you, you alerted me to 
an important bit of background about the former iconic, uh, now late iconic uh, uh, game show host. Well, I'm shocked that people don't know this. I guess it's just something I've always known because uh, it is true that every single time you go to any uh, Indigenous household uh, during the day, uh, Price is Right is on and you go to uh, who's ever watching, usually a grandmother or a grandfather, and you'll be like, oh, Price is Right. And they'll say, you know that Bob Barker is Indigenous. And uh, and you'll find, you know, I've always known that because he he grew up really? on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. Uh, he's a citizen of the Sioux or Rosebud Sioux tribe. Uh, and he's just very famous uh, in the Indigenous world as kind of one of our heroes. Uh, and so it just it's odd to me that people don't know this, but I guess people are sort of rediscovering it uh, in the wake of his passing. Well, it's incumbent upon me to ask whether or not Bob embraced uh, his indigenous culture oh, or whether because it is true there's a lot of people in Hollywood film and television who perhaps didn't didn't make it obvious like they had to hide it uh, or you know felt they had to hide oh for sure like they're the very famous uh, uh, musical theater icon Will Rogers and uh, various other writers and and you know Bob Barker came up during a time when it wasn't very very cool to be indigenous and certainly wasn't good to talk about it um but he very much during most of his life uh donated and supported indigenous rights and and uh, the ways in which his community uh, were struggling for representation and recognition and uh lots of people often would comment that he would be the person who uh brought indigenous some issues to the mainstream in very just various different ways. Uh, and so, yeah, no, absolutely. I think Bob Barker is a hero to many Indigenous peoples. Well, um, happy trails, Bob. Uh, we're sorry that you're gone. I don't know anybody who disliked him per se. So that's a hell of a thing to say these days. Uh, so <laughs> hey, way to go, Bob. As we noted earlier, uh, the second biggest story in Manitoba after Bob Barker's passing is the start of a Manitoba election. I mean, we, you know, uh, and I will say this is the official start of the Manitoba election because those pesky new Democrats, they have been campaigning for already for 28 days. They have turned the 28 day uh, legislative campaign into a 56 day campaign, a strategy that we have yet to see what, you know, what kind of results that's gonna produce. But, you know, man, they have been out on a daily basis uh, uh, and have issued a, a, a large body of work for us to uh, assess. They were making uh, campaign announcements when there was only the, sh the shadow of a campaign, or you certainly couldn't get other political leaders in Manitoba to talk about uh, elections, but the NDP has been for quite a while now making policy announcements and, and promising things. But, you know, this week, I think probably the most, uh, worst held secret, but also uh, the kind of interesting approach that Heather Stephenson took to drop the writ or to announce the election, um, doing it in a supermarket or doing it in front of a, a kind of what everyone's worried about right now, which is price of groceries, affordability, inflation. Uh, it's interesting that she's chosen that to be her the big moment, the big uh, announcement, the big entry of the election campaign, because that's very much a federal issue. 
but sort of bringing it home and bringing back the things we've been talking about for a while, likening the NDP to Justin Trudeau. Yeah, affordability um, matches up well with the two other announcements that they did make some pre-writ announcements of their own, although uh, very small number compared to the NDP. Um, they did an announcement where they were going to launch a, yet a new legal challenge against the carbon tax. Having uh, already done that once and lost, uh, they appear to be uh, headed uh, towards some other, you know, date in a courtroom and lawyers will get paid and the rest of us will be left scratching our head. And uh, the other one was parental rights. Now, it, it, so they made an announcement that they're going to enshrine a, a deeper, broader set of uh, parental rights in provincial legislation. Uh, parental rights, uh, that term has become the dog whistle for people who want to uh, ban books, uh, you know, uh, limit or eliminate uh, curriculum uh, in schools that deals with sexuality, uh, gender identity, uh, you know, homosexuality and the LGBTQ uh, plus uh, issues. And um, yeah, you know, I, I can't say that it's headed in a really uh, positive direction, uh, but I do understand the strategy. Yeah, I mean, the strategy is pretty simple. It's to shore up the base, but also in a weird kind of worry of uh, other, I mean, do we call them fringe parties anymore? I mean, the the kind of the keystone element within the conservative movement uh, to make sure to give a sort of tip of the hat to those who might be considering to vote for a more harder conservative social issue driven party. Uh, to sort of signal those uh, issues early on in the campaign, maybe to talk about more other things that might be getting more to the more of the center. So getting those things out early, uh, but certainly doing the parental rights move, which is very much reminiscent of what Blaine Higgs is doing out in New Brunswick and uh, and out in the the uh, East Coast there. It's certainly divisive, and it certainly draws some pretty distinct lines between uh, a conservative social movement and then a progressive kind of center movement, uh, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ issues. Uh, there is a interesting move that Wab Canoe did just a few weeks ago that really is along these lines, and uh, I guess the best way to describe it, and we were talking about it before, <laughs> the best way to describe it is Wab's I have a braid speech and <laughs> and and it, in it's a remark it was a pretty remarkable speech in that he gave this real distinct lines it was supposed to be a speech on on crime but it ended up being a real attack on the conservative attacks on him personally and his race uh, yeah i think the decision to say something i mean everything that happens in an election campaign there's a risk reward equation so uh, the, the, the reward that uh, WAB and the NDP are looking for is in calling out uh, the Conservatives for some clearly uh, unsavory, uh, you know, uh, attacks on him, um, the advertising that they're running, uh, particularly the ads that featuring uh, 
the the PC candidate in Fort Rouge who's running against Wab is a former police officer. They're running those ads across the entire province, almost. Yeah, particularly across the city. I have one. It's not even my riding, but there's a there's a a bus bench just down the street from me, uh, and here I see. Uh, this fight between Wob and this other candidate, but very much making it about Wob. Yes, uh, uh, referencing his troubles with the law uh, when he was a young man uh, and suggesting that violent crime would become worse uh, under a Wob canoe government, um, which is, uh, you know, it's re- it's remarkable. And it is, you know, like it's an inescapable part of the political uh, debate that uh, political parties and political leaders, you know, are constantly accusing each other of doing things to uh, prompt a rise in violent crime. You know, when really it, there's very few instances where you can say that uh, a government policy or a lack of government policy did anything to actually affect the the uh, the amount of crime. It's it's socioeconomic. It, uh, you know, it's it's complex, um, you know, and so, you know, accusing one party of, uh, of being a gateway to higher, you know, violent crime and that allegation coming from a government on whose watch there has been a profound spike in violent crime should be evidence enough that this is this is totally a phony war. It's an intellectually dishonest Debate. We should be talking about, I suppose, ways of attacking the root causes of uh, crime and violent crime. Instead, we're trying to pretend that, uh, in this case, a First Nations premier and the government that he would lead would somehow promote violent crime. I mean, it's preposterous. The, and probably the most preposterous at all is that uh, when we make the issues around affordability or around uh, you know, poverty or the socioeconomic reasons that you're talking about that lead to crime. Um, who led a very hardcore, good, bad, great, ugly, but the frank facts are that the most hardcore austerity agenda has been with the Conservatives in Manitoba that has in so many ways gutted much of the social organizations in the downtown. We've talked about this in the podcast. And also that uh, the spike in poverty has come under the watch, the rise in in encampments, the the rise in mental health problems or addictions. Um, you can put a little bit on the pandemic, but you can absolutely 100% put this on uh, how, a number of years of conservative rule in the cuts of, uh, of ERs, the cuts of mental health programs, the cuts to social organizations in the downtown area. So, I mean, it is very interesting to keep making this about crime, but uh, it, it, to blame it on uh, one party that hasn't even been in power for a very long period of time and then sort of ignore all the cuts that the auster- the austerity agenda has been made under both Brian Pallister and Heather De- Stephenson is it's kind of preposterous to to make this argument. I already I already said preposterous. You need to find another word. I was going to say absurd. Or okay, that's yeah. Making like because it it just seems to be uh, almost ignoring the facts. But I guess you know facts don't really matter as much in election campaigns as much as uh, what bus ads look like. 
Now, of course, we uh, uh, the Liberals uh, Party is also in this election. We haven't talked about them yet, but we are today. Uh, we're lucky to have a, a feature interview with Liberal leader Dugald Lamont. And uh, I, I would say like it was a pretty interesting interview. Um, you know, he is, uh, you know, often referred to as, you know, the the real policy wonk of the uh, among the leaders of the three major parties. Um, and the Liberals do have, you know, they they float a lot of ideas that are worth uh, considering. We go over some of those ideas. Um, and uh, also, I think, interestingly, uh, I think uh, we had a prognosticators panel uh, about a month and a half back. We brought in um, holsters and political scientists, Chris Adams and Curtis Brown, and we all had to make our predictions. And we all predicted that it's going to be a very tight election. I don't think anything's changed from that. But what that means is there there is new focus on uh, Duval Lamont and the Liberals currently hold three seats, but they've had strong showings in by-elections. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what role he has to play. And not you know not only that, but but it also hampers. We talk about this a little bit in the interview, but uh, it hampers back to a days in which uh, the past days in Manitoba, when the Liberal Party was certainly more relevant politically, certainly had more power. The days of Sharon Carstairs, and we talk a little bit about that uh, in the interview. It's very interesting that the ND the NDP's uh, perhaps hesitancy to go down certain routes involving uh, the landfill search and involving, um, you know, even addressing Indigenous issues. I guess in many ways, Wab, uh, as he said in his speech a few weeks back, uh, he wants to be a leader for all Manitobans. And so they've been perhaps hesitant to step out on, on many issues involving Indigenous peoples. The Liberals have filled in that space. They've in many ways start to inhabit the, the kind of space of a progressive Manitoba in, in lots of ways. We talk about that in the interview because I think that this election uh, is kind of a bizarre one in Canadian politics. And I, you know, you're seeing a, the, the country kind of look to Manitoba because you see in some ways the Liberal Party in Manitoba being more left than the NDP. Uh, and that's interesting. I mean, that's an interesting thing. That's an interesting story that will play out in the uh, Manitoba election that will be coming in just under a month. That's right. Uh, 28 days, 27 days, actually, from the date of recording this. Uh, so let's go now to our feature chat with Liberal leader Dugald Lamont. Yeah, okay, great. in uh, three, two, one. Uh, during the election, it's uh, our intention to interview all of the party leaders, the main party leaders, and we're fortunate enough today to begin that part of the Nagan and the Lone Ranger podcast election edition with a, uh, a chat with uh, Liberal leader Dugald Lamont. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, coming by. Um, so uh, just very briefly, so yep. you're, you've been an MLA for five years. Yep. And uh, you have been leader of the Liberal Party for six years. Yes. Okay. Now, and I don't, I don't mean this to be a uh, criticism because I think this is actually a remarkable story. But um, you, you know, you've been involved in politics for a long time. Yep. You were, you know, a strategist, staffer, backroom kind of guy. This is the twentieth anniversary of me running as an MLA in St. Paul. You stole my line, oh, man. Sorry, okay, yeah. Ahead. No, I was going to say though, like yeah. it is remarkable that you you did run. Um, in the 2003 general election, yeah, 
and uh, against uh, uh, then soon to be at some point in the future Premier Greg Selinger. Yeah. And you got 952 votes. Yeah, yeah. Which, for people who don't understand electoral mathematics, that is not enough to win a seat in the Manitoba legislature. Um, but what's remarkable is that then you engineered, carefully engineered, your comeback <laughs> over 15, the next 15 years. Yes, absolutely. Well, so it, so we go to the by-election. Yeah. Uh, and well, look, this is what I say. Yeah. I also ran for Manitoba Liberal leader, right? Yes. So what I say is, and look, I. I don't do things the same way twice, right? When I, we actually, and this is true, we actually try to learn the painful lessons of our uh, failures, which I will say that. It's a, it's, failure is a great teacher. The most important thing is getting back up and getting at it again. Um, but yeah, I ran for MLA in St. Boniface once and lost. And the second time I won, I ran for leader once uh, and the second time I, and lost in the second time I won. And I've run for premier once. So... Well, and uh, <laughs> we'll okay, so you're saying <laughs> like second time's lucky, right? Uh, <laughs> it is actually that it is about learning from the learning and adapting from the first uh, thing. Part of it is you learn things not to do. Well, I'm not doing that again. That's actually the great the great difference between uh, when between losing and uh, and winning is that when you lost, you know there's something you should have done differently. Where winning, you, th- you if you won, you have no idea what you might have done what you might actually have done wrong. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so, uh, yeah, for the first 10 years, like, it was a bleak time for liberals federally and provincially. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then I guess it got back into the game seriously in about 2014. So, uh, like, I think the, it's, I don't know if elephant in the room is the right term, but, I, I mean, I think that the the narrative about the Manitoba Liberal Party, uh, I will suggest to you so that you can react to it, remains largely the same as the last two or three provincial leaders, which is uh, struggling to get party, uh, official party standing. Uh, Though we did have, I did actually have official party standing I, so I, that, when no, I no, first won. So, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, struggling uh, to get traction in elections, st- you know, struggling to become a viable third option for Manitoba voters. So, and uh, please feel free to disagree with as much of that as you want. Yeah. But uh, going into this election... You know, what sort of do you have intuitively, instinctively, or, you know, or just actually or actually yeah. uh, that, that, that you think this election is going to be different for the liberals that you're going to find that traction? Well, look, I think part of it is that, um, look, I don't think the past is a guide to the complete guide to the future. Um, but things part of it is things are different. I mean, if you look at what the other two parties are offering. Um, and at, when you look at what the PCs have got, you have some really terrible, honestly, terrible failures on healthcare, on justice, on a whole sense, a bunch of other files that they don't want to talk about. Um, the NDP, it's interesting to me that they're, they seem to be very much trying to be PCs, but what we've done differently, we are better organized than we have been. This is probably one of the best organized elections we've had in decades. We have, uh, a ton of really, really great candidates, like incredibly strong candidates in in elections. Um, sorry, if you look, my joke about the PCs is that they're they're running a real who's that of of candidates. You don't know who they are. There's a ton of like what the reality is. Things are different. <laughs> I mean, this is a different election. This is post pandemic, but 
the strongest thing we've got is that we have a ton of really strong candidates. And we also have shown in the last four years um, that if you look at, we were able to run 57 candidates and maintain three seats instead of being wiped out, which was the intention in 2019. Not being wiped out isn't really not always a, a great thing to run on. But we persevered, we endured, and now we have candidates like Willard Reason, Fort White, uh, uh, where who I mean Charles Ward in Assiniboia, uh, we have Ron uh, Nickel in Kirkfield Park, Robert Falcon Ouellette in Southdale. We have people across Winnipeg and actually across the province who are, are like I am blown away by the quality of our candidates. They are incredibly motivated. They're organized and they've been knocking on doors for weeks or months right now. So that is all making a difference, and we're seeing that. We are actually seeing. We're able to see that change. We're able to see seats flipping over from being well maybe iffy to being to pushing towards winnable uh so i mean the thing that's really different about this election is that i don't know whether the other two parties can win government i mean i don't know that they can win a certainly not a majority government and that makes a big difference because i don't think uh i certainly don't think anyone thinks they can agree <laughs> sorry that they i've talked to lots of people who don't think the NDP and the PCs deserve uh, a majority government. And we absolutely are viable. Op- we are absolutely presenting a viable option. If by a viable option, you mean that we're running incredibly great candidates and we have a fantastic platform that we're going to release shortly. Um, and we actually have a record where we've done a bunch of really great stuff in the legislature as well. I mean, we've been able to accomplish things despite our numbers um, and be sensible and reasonable about it. So those are all things that are really like people need to say what's actually happening now instead of just looking and saying, well, things that this is the way it's always been. Well, I mean, in the, in the process of doing research for this interview, uh, I started looking up your uh, background, your political background and the different people that you've worked with. And I came across uh, that you had worked with or worked for advised uh, Sharon Carstairs. Oh yeah. And I mean, the, in so many ways, what you're kind of describing is uh, a liberal party, a Manitoba liberal party in 1984. She starts, she takes the leadership, uh, and there's no seats. They have no seats. No seats at all, yeah. Over the next four years, she sort of scratches and claws. She gets her seat, and then uh, they get to the highest. I mean, it helps, of course, that Howard Pauley's government uh, fell apart, and, and uh, but you know, 20 seats out of 57 in, in 88, yep. uh, the 88 election. I mean, that's kind of your template, isn't it? I mean, what did you learn from working with Sharon Carstairs? And then how could you uh, pick up some of the lessons from that 88 yep. provincial election? Well, I was actually a scrutineer in that election. That was one of the first elections I ever worked on. My dad was an advisor, was a, was a volunteer advisor who used to go into budget lockup with Sharon back in the day. Um, so he knew her well. And, uh, but part of it is, just doing the work on the ground. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of stuff that has to be done. It's just running better organized campaigns, making sure we're getting people on the doors and getting and getting knocking, people knocking, getting strong candidates. So we've done all those things, um, and we're doing all those things. I mean, Sharon, when you meet and talk with her, you realize, oh, okay, well, this is why Sharon was Sharon. Because I think, Dan, you said it once before, she was able to absolutely crystallize something. In fact, I'll give you an example. She actually worked with us on Bill 64, on fighting Bill 64, hmm. right? She was. She said, send me all this stuff, send me the report, and send me the legislation. 
And she sent back a, a summary, which was mind-blowing, which she, she just said, this is the same old apple pie and motherhood about education that everybody's been saying since the 1960s and it didn't work then. <laughs> that's like one of the, that's a perfect example of just how uh, good Sharon is at boiling these things down. But the other is we actually have, so we have, uh, that's one of the things. And Sharon, yeah, she was just, she was always very, very strong and outspoken and, and very caring too. I mean, she's a very, very warm person. Um, but yeah, it was her ability to break things down and make them as simple as possible. And I, you know what, I always, I always think about a thing she said is that, you know, the difference, liberals actually recognize that, you know, businesses need to make profits and unions have to have their rights recognized. <laughs> like those are two things that are, shouldn't be contradictory, but those are one of the basic things about what it means to be a liberal. So, uh, yeah. And I, and I, and the other thing I would say was her fight on, uh, initially I think she was looking at, I think it was maybe medically assisted, uh, uh, dying right way back in the day. And instead she said, well, I'm a Senator, and she looked into it and said, well, what we really need is palliative care. So she made herself a cabinet minister. <laughs> she walked into Jean Chrétien and said, look, you know what? I need, uh, I, need to make, I need you to make me a cabinet minister in charge of palliative care for all of Canada. And that continues to be her passion. So she's been, and she did, she continued to do uh, really, really great work. But in terms of organization and in terms of what we're trying to do, it is, similar to 1988 it's about going out and getting those great candidates making sure they're out uh they're out knocking on doors early and uh, making sure that we've got a good platform which we do well one of the things i think that was a hallmark of uh sharon carstairs is that i mean the mental liberal party was her party and it was she was the face of it she was out there and uh in lots of ways uh you've made the liberal party very much you're the face of it you're yeah. the one that's coming out with many of these you know anytime there's an announcement you're right there uh, but one of the other things that sharon carsters was most notable for is because of that leadership style uh, she would frequently clash with other liberals um most notably you know lloyd axworthy i can remember these battles that yeah, she yeah. used to have uh, around the constitution and uh you know, you took over a party that was in many ways uh, for a long time, still maybe is in some circles, is Dr. John Gerard. And anyone in Manitoba politics that's listening outside of Manitoba, I mean, Dr. John Gerard is kind of one of Manitoba's sort of iconic MLAs. He's been there for uh, two and a half decades. Uh, he led the Liberal Party when perhaps some of the darker days since before you took leadership of uh, basically himself and maybe one other MLA in, in the legislature. What's it been like to share leadership or, or work with uh, John Gerard? And then uh, what is it like to, uh, you know, probably try to take the party in the direction you want to take, which is uh, and still have many of the longstanding liberals, uh, well, John, John Gerard particularly, uh, still around? Yeah. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think when I was first elected MLA, I think the Free Press wrote an editorial saying I should fire him and run in River Heights, <laughs> which I, and I... I think I wrote that. Already, so, and yeah, I right, was, I right away I had to run in, which made Monday morning awkward. Look, the, the <laughs> thing about it is that I ran for, I ran for leader against three sitting MLAs who were backed by two sitting MPs, um, which was a challenge. And then I had to go work with three people who did not vote for me on Monday morning. Uh, I won on a Saturday. And that... So I had to, 
So I had an interesting challenge, and part of that was to avoid, you know, in the 90s, there was all sorts of challenges because there was a leader who was not elected, and there were three MLAs. And it ended up being, uh, at all costs, I wanted to avoid that. So I had to I had to make sure on I was uniting the party, bringing people together. I know that Sharon and uh, Lloyd fought about uh, fought a lot, um, and we were on the other side of that. I mean, like my my family, we were on the we were on Sharon's side when it came to Meech Lake and those constitutional uh, issues. Um, yeah, uh, but you know, it's it's been some of it is to say we need to be focused. The big things we've changed is I need to I need to work with everybody. I need to be able to incorporate everybody. I have to work with Cindy Lamru, uh, and I have to work with John. And some of it is is about giving them free reign and or or enough space to do the things they need to do. I don't I don't I'm not a micromanager. Uh, but the important thing for me is that I want to make sure that they can say the things they want to say, and that I get to say the things that I want to say. But I'm still putting my stamp on the party. And for that for that uh, for, for me. I mean, some of that is building on. Some of that is building. We already have a leg. We already have a positive legacy. So it's building on the positive legacies. But for me, uh, getting stepping away from anything like privatization, I am not interested in privatization. Um, I think I'm more of a, in some ways, a center left politician. Or and, but it's also. The, so for me, I'm extremely interested in. But the other story, also the one other things that I'm really interested in uh, are powerfully interested in are issues of justice. It's not to say John wasn't, uh, but both in terms of real life justice and social justice and making things right that uh, are wrong. Uh, I'm a bit more fierce about those things, or or I feel a bit more strongly about them. Um, And yeah, and, and, but the other thing is that I could not do it without, I couldn't go into the house. John has this encyclopedic knowledge of house affairs, right? So Mm -hmm. he can say, well, look, this is the rule that happened back in 2007, and this is why we can or can't do this. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I mean, part of it is just I don't feel you sort of have to work with the team you you got, and you have to bring people together. And we've done that. I mean, that was it. Is there was a point when, like early on, yeah, I was working with a bunch of people who did not vote for me, and the the, and but we kept it all together, and we got it elected, and we got elected. So. And we've made significant changes, so that's been part of it. It has it's been an incremental process of dealing with these things, um, yeah. And but letting John, it, because John continues to come up with important with important insights that we wouldn't we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Whether it, both on two areas, one is the environment, and the other is on pandemic preparedness, for right. example. And he the pandemic was on his radar in February 2020, and yeah. he was saying we have to get ready for this right now. Yeah. So we we've, we've had that. We're all we're all kind of ner- policy nerds, but those are. It's just about making the use of the best use of everyone's strengths. So the you had mentioned in you know about um, you know you have to learn from your mistakes or that you do learn from your mistakes yeah. and you become better. So you know political leadership is so much different than just being an elected official. Yeah. Um, so uh, and I, I I commit to you that this is a question where we'll ask all leaders. But what do you think are your strengths and weaknesses? What what have you been? What have you done well? But what well, are the my thing? big weakness yeah. is I'm too humble. Yeah, that's right. No, that that is yeah, that is the line. And yeah, uh, yeah. I I don't think uh, I think humility works into it. I don't know about humble yeah. for any political leader. But more importantly, though, like you look, five years is is a substantial body of work for yeah. for a political leader. What do you think you've done well? What do you think you wish you did better? 
and and are still working on uh, to become a better political leader. Yeah. Um, there are, in terms of, look, in terms of the things we've accomplished, I mean, I think there are a whole bunch of areas where we put forward, as we tend to do, Manitoba Liberals tend to do, we put forward great ideas and they get stolen by other parties. <laughs> and they take the credit for it, which is, that's life. I know that when I think, we've actually been able to pass a number of bills. I'm very proud of the work we did on bringing in bills around to try to reform non-disclosure agreements. That, to me, um, was uh, incredibly important. We had 20 people at a committee talking about, they were able to speak and break their NDAs for the first time in their lives because we had figured out that, uh, and this was actually one, um, I had actually operated on a hunch that I thought, well, maybe maybe if they're presenting, they, they can be covered by parliamentary privilege, which means these people who are testifying, anybody at any committee at the legislature can say, uh, can speak the truth and not be sued for it. And that is absolutely colossal. So it actually meant that uh, some women and men who had faced incredible abuse often and mistreatment were all of a sudden able to let it all out. So I'm very, uh, um, I'm very proud of that about working with people. I think the hard the hard part about it for me is that I would like to be able to work more collaboratively with uh, with the other parties actually. So yeah, so I sort of have to be the face. I sort of have to be the bad guy, right, John? And look, let's face it. Cindy Lamarou is an incredibly nice person. John Gerard is a very nice person. And while I'm not always comfortable uh, with it, I have to be a bit more of an attack dog, which which is not always, it's a challenge for a leader, but it also means that um, it, it figuring out ways to collaborate better, that's the biggest challenge with in, in reaching out uh, across the way. Those are the things. And actually, some of it is that um, explaining my points. So sometimes I'll be... If, look, this is with my staff and with the public. If anything, it's unpacking what I'm talking about because I've already I've already skipped ahead four steps and I haven't explained how I've gotten right. There. So that's part of that's part of what I need to make. It's stopping and checking and making sure that I'm speaking. Yeah, speaking not just uh, you know not using two dollar words all the time. So that I think if um, and I have spoken to a lot of liberals in advance of this um, uh, interview. So I think that the the theme that comes across most often is that you know you're incredibly knowledgeable you really know how to tear into issues uh, you know the, the finding an opportunity for those people to break their NDAs yeah I, I think that's a fair representation that you're yeah. you're looking at the 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 political and legislative processes with a with a keen eye I think that that the uh, what other liberals would say is that the retail politics which is really, how you look, how you sound. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the the most substantial part of the job, but it's an important part of the job yeah. that you struggle with retail politics. Would you would you accept, or or maybe talk to me about getting? You know, when you're leader, you have to be good at the retail part. Yeah. Tell me, was it hard at first? Uh, do you still find parts of the of the uh, the the marketing of a political leader, the marketing of the party brand, to be tough? Uh no, it's it's my my challenge is that I don't like being fake. So I don't like lying about anything. I don't like uh, no. Look, there are all sorts of ways in which I feel like I'm a. I do feel like I'm a terrible politician, not because uh, uh, not because I'm bad at my job, but because I'm fighting against what politics is in Manitoba, 
right? So I think that there's a lot of these things where people, why don't you just say this or why don't you just do this? It's like, I can't actually bring myself to do those things sometimes because I cannot bring myself to... It's one of the things that makes me angriest is when people manipulate and cheat people. Again, so maybe I'm in the wrong business. Uh, but so it, this is sort of the performance art of politics. You, yeah, you, no, you've I'm got not, less tolerance for that. I have very... No, and that's it, right? Is that it's like, I don't like... Yeah, I'm... I hate empty political theater. <laughs> that's my problem. Uh, that and that and that is both. I think that well, there we go. It's a strength and a weakness. Is that I'm actually not interested in, mm-hmm. uh, and it's 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 incredibly frustrating because, you know, this is the it's actually a realization I had about my own my own degree. So my degree is in English literature, a master's degree, famously the most useless degree you can have. <laughs> right? If even if I taken basket weaving, I would have some. I could at least say I could work with my hands. But what I have realized, not only Am I trained to think about language, trained to think about different people's perspectives, put myself in different people's shoes? I was trained in telling the difference between real and make-believe. And I'm not interested in political make-believe. I'm I'm interested in political reality. And that's so much of what... So the challenge is when somebody says, well, why didn't you do this and be something you're not? I can't do it. Uh, But the other is that I've also been told, don't be something you're not. Right? So some of it is that uh, yeah, it's it's the degree to which I'm just, there's only so far I can go to, to bend. But it's also, I think that's kind of what makes me who I am because it means that I'm not, there are things that I will not do. Like part of it relates to principle. Um, part of it relates to, yeah, to, I say, I don't want to sell it. I don't want to tell everybody, here's this policy that I think is not going to work. Just to, just to, like, I think, I find that, I think that's, I really don't like politics to be just considered either theater or a con game. You see a lot of the theater now in the unofficial campaign that's preceding the official campaign? Well, and we get it every day in the legislature. It's a lot of, like, where where questions aren't asked, (laughs) the non-questions aren't answered. Uh, There's a lot of screaming and insults. You literally have debates over some things that are completely, like I say, they're, they're disconnected from reality. Like we're not even talking about things that are, actually there's a perfect example. The, the, the PCs were buying an ad. Uh, they bought an ad about ankle bracelets for a program that doesn't exist yet. So, and I've seen debates break down where, where, <laughs> and everyone is having a, a huge debate. If you're, for those of you who are listening right my, now, I actually he has, have my hand and my head in my hands. Yeah, head in Sorry. his hands. Yeah. Because literally nobody understands what's going on, and they're all wrong. So we, we had a huge fight over the, there was this huge thing about, well, is the government going to be able to pay any of its employees? Oh, we're all freaking out. Oh, there's this. None of it. It was all completely irrelevant because nobody actually, nobody in that place actually understood the rules. It was absolutely, so you have people, so you have literally, you have it is dominating headlines, the idea that, oh, no, the Manitoba government is going to shut down because we didn't pass this measure. Uh, well, actually, none of that is true at all. The government can always pay its bills, right? So That's we're a U.S., entirely U.S. No, construct. So, yeah. and, and, that's, and so part of it, yeah, my, and that actually is one of, it, it's a deeper problem for politics generally in Manitoba that we need to have, actually have a shared reality and we don't. And so some of that is talking about, like even, uh, I'll give the example of, uh, well, with the, well, like the idea that there's an NDP liberal coalition in, in Manitoba, right? Is that <laughs> there isn't. Uh, we have provincial politics. And, they, and it's, that is my great frustration, is that there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, 
where it's yeah it's or it's or it's controversial it's like a hot button issue that is really something that should is really a twitter fight and it's all of a sudden it's getting a ton of news when really it's a twitter fight and that's mm-hmm. where it should stay yeah well I, so the, you've done a few different catchphrases there if everything's wrong and nobody knows what they're doing sounds like a, a campaign slogan but <laughs> uh, but you know at the same time you've got you've you know you remain you talk about reality right and um you may be a very real speaking person but you've waded into perhaps the most harshest reality in the province which is uh indigenous the the areas on indigenous peoples yep um for i mean i think out of all of the issues that you've done since you've become leader uh, or that you've engaged and encountered is probably, you know, the most frequent one is on Indigenous issues. I think about the letter that she wrote to the Archdiocese on residential schools. I think about the uh, the announcements that you've made over the years about bandwidth for the North and, and engaging issues of justice and poverty. And then, of course, you know, when the landfill uh, feasibility study came out yep. and when... Uh, Premier Stephenson said she wasn't going to fund it. Uh, the the NDP was eerily silent for a few weeks on that issue, or or at least a period of time where it was noticeable. Yep. Um, you came out right away and said that you'd be willing to fund half of the landfill, even though we're talking about 184 million dollars. Uh, why is this? Why is Indigenous issues such a passion for you? And then second is, why do you really think that you could afford to pay for the landfill search? <laughs> It's a funny thing. Look, my family has always had some sort of connection. Uh, my grandfather worked with um, a guy named Roger Taye, who was a, a Métis. He was the first ever Métis, self-declared Métis politician uh, in, in the federal cabinet. He was a, he was a Manitoba liberal. My, my grandfather worked with him back in the 1930s when they were living in Headingley, and you'd have Métis families going through, uh, you know, at, like, and camping. They'd see them in spring, and they'd see them in fall. So the and my family were living in a in a shack in a shack on the banks of the Assiniboine River. So, it, despite having been uh, like get, had an education at the U of M, right, having a law law degree, he my grandfather's living there. Literally, I don't like I, I mean a shack, an actual shed. So, and then throughout, we just because we were liberals, it was like this is what liberals did. Um, that there was in some of it is just the fundamental recognition, the reason why stand for indigenous rights or women's rights or. LGBTQS rights is because they're human beings. And the other is that uh, purely by accident, my aunt who lived in the, <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, had a, her law partner was Marion Meadmore, uh, Marion Ironquill Meadmore, who was the first ever First Nations woman called to the bar in Canada. And so, and my aunt who lived with us was working on CFS cases back in the 70s and 80s and would come home and talk about how absolutely disgraceful it was that in Manitoba you can have all your rights taken away on the just on the word of a social worker and it's been like that for 40 or 50 years and then I found out what it all was <laughs> right so part of it for me is that I hear what people are saying and it's it this is just a moral issue we cannot treat people this way right no. so and that's and 
indigenous people are human beings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like this is it's as flat as that. These are and the rights that are being violated, and, it's mind blowing that we yeah. don't talk about this is this should be the most important thing we're talking about and we the, no one wants to talk about it at all. The prairie green story though has become a, a weird kind of uh, like speed bump yeah. in the debate on reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's such a horrible story, it's such a unique story. Um, the the issue of searching the landfill yep. um, has become divisive in a way that I don't think people completely understood. Those of us at the Free Press, I mean, we yep. certainly know when we write about it, we are getting, it's not a, a, a scientific measurement of, yep. of public opinion, but we're getting so many people expressing anger and resentment at the idea of yep. the, the money yep. being spent. Now, So, yeah, and I'll, I'll address that. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I, I was going to say, so you've got the NDP who may or may not be kind of playing down the issue. Then you have uh, the Tories who seem to be almost stoking anti-reconciliation yes. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, uh, sentiment. You guys came out really strong really early on the issue. So like with all of this other stuff that you've discussed yeah. as a context, though, but why take this on when it's clearly a more divisive issue than maybe some of us thought it was going to be? Uh well, we'd already made the commitment. Uh, we made the commitment. We uh, So we were getting questions. We had a couple of questions from, um, yeah, so candidates were out there, and somebody said, what's our position on this? And and we, and this is in maybe May, I think. Um, and we looked at it, and we said, well, this should be done. because. And so I wrote a letter to uh, Grand Chief Merrick and uh, Cindy Woodhouse, uh, uh, Regional Chief Cindy Woodhouse in July, in June, and said, "Yeah, we're we all support this." Um, I, the one thing, when everyone says, "Well, it's 184 million dollars," I don't, I don't understand why. Of all the projects, usually government projects or, or a government initiative, nobody says, "What's the top dollar we're going to pay for this?" It's 84 to 184 million dollars. It can be done safely, and so part of this is that. The thing that makes me outraged about it is this is a crime. This is, there is, you have 67, aside from this, aside from the two people, we know there are bodies in there. This is a crime scene. It's an investigation. And instead of standing with victims of, everyone's afraid to stand with the victims of crime because they're indigenous, right? That's the way I see it. Like this is about justice and it has to be justice for everyone. Like this is, to me, this is a, it's not that it's a no brainer, but the, the Manitoba government has tons of money to spend this. To, to, the, the Manitoba government's job is to administer justice. <laughs> That's its job. And they're refusing to do it. In other provinces, this would never come up as a, some kind of referendum issue. The PCs are basically running. Yeah, it, it's absolutely horrific that they're basically using this as a wedge because it completely flips what we're supposed to be talking about. We're talking about people whose family members were murdered and their bodies, we know their bodies are there. So, and I went to an AMC press conference where they talked to all the experts and they laid it out. They said, look, this can be done safely. There are people who work there safely right now. And they had experts, they had uh, a forensic anthropologist who worked on the Picton pig farm. You have people who've worked, searched uh, landfills in, in Sault Ste. Marie and in Toronto. We do this, but they don't have votes mm -hmm. on it because the problem here, like, <laughs> again... You know, people, this is when, when the, the PCs talk about the NDP defunding the police, the PCs are way ahead of them. And all these people who asked the PCs to defund the police, well, the NDP, f sorry, the PCs froze funding to municipalities for seven years straight. 
They've starved the entire justice system. We've, we've lost police. We don't have enough police. We actually don't have enough crown, crown prosecutors to actually make the justice system work. And then you have a supposedly tough-on-crime government, which is saying, well, we're not going to do anything for these victims of crime. It's the like we're living in this topsy-turvy world. And then the NDP are afraid to talk about it. Yeah. That, that's my feeling about it, is that the only reason they did this is because we went ahead and said it and they felt and then people were saying, well, we, we can't just let the liberals do that. Right. But it's yep. fundamental. It's, it's the right thing to do for justice in Manitoba and for victims of crime. A few weeks ago, uh, in one of our uh, other podcasts, uh, we had uh, an election poll kind of projection show uh, where we talked about what the election would look like. And uh, we were all pretty set on the idea that it's going to be a very tight election and it's going to be, uh, you know, Winnipeg will be off, you know, mostly NDP uh, the rural areas will be mostly PC. And then there's these kind of smatterings throughout the province where there's some fairly safe or at least very competitive ridings for the Liberals. Yep. And there is a real possibility that you may hold some measure of the balance of power if, in fact, there is a minority uh, legislature. Yes. Uh, what are the priority issues that you would put on a, such a scenario like that? I mean, everyone talks about the supply and confidence agreement between yeah. the NDP and the Liberals federally. Uh, we may see something like that in Manitoba. What would be those top, let's say, three issues that you would want on the table if you were to be in that situation? Um, well, look, I mean, no, I think we can. There are a series of seats where we can pick up from both the PCs and the NDP where we've, we have very strong candidates uh, running. Yeah, and so, but I think it's true. I think that the other parties will s- certainly struggle to have a majority, and they certainly will struggle to justify having a majority, um, <laughs> given both their behavior and their policies. Because I think the NDP, frankly, is is running, they keep on making announcements that are basically quasi-PC. I mean, they're not. They actually said they're going to support the budget. So actually... One of the things we would say is, look, we need a new budget right now. The NDP have actually made a, a big mistake, I think, in saying they won't have a new budget because it actually means they can't change anything for a year. There, are, You cannot bring new, in Manitoba, you can do it in other provinces a bit, but in Manitoba, unless you have a new budget passed, you can't do new things. So the first thing was we need a new budget. Um, the second thing uh, in providing, yeah, is electoral reform. So we would say we want ranked ballots uh, because we want to change the way, we really want to change the way elections are run. Part of the problem with the way elections are run in Manitoba and the reason why it's so polarized and the reason why it's so divided and people run nothing but attack ads is that they, uh, is it because we have the first past the post system we have. So it rewards this kind of division. uh, Whereas ranked ballots, and specifically ranked ballots, not proportional representation, ranked ballots, which we had in here in Manitoba, um, would mean that every single MLA has to get over 50% plus one of, uh, of each of, of thing. That'd be one thing. There is a number of reconciliation measures. One of the most important things to me is returning the $338 million that was taken from children in the care of CFS. Um, and then moving forward with a series of... Uh, of critical health and, and, and crime reforms. Um, on health, uh, we should be making sure that we're, um, we need to be investing in, in increasing 
there's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do with health, but specifically increasing medical residencies, training people up, making sure that we're working on uh, credential recognition because the other parties are talking about bringing people in. We have doctors, nurses, and other people who could be working in Manitoba right now if they were trained. Um, and then, yeah, actually another one would be that we want to bring in uh, a registry of businesses, an open and transparent businesses registry. This is actually the first bill that the PCs brought in after 2019, and it was terrible. But if uh, the reason for that is that we can, uh, it's to, we know that due to a, a Thompson Reuters investigation that there are businesses in Manitoba that are linked to organized crime, that are laundering money, they're trafficking in human beings and sex workers, and they're able to get away with it because nobody's asking what kind of business they're actually running. Uh, this is a recommendation of Transparency International. It's a recommendation of for people for human trafficking. So we actually need to do a whole bunch of stuff that's cracking down uh, on on that. And actually, the flip side, we actually is uh, on is not just being tough on crime. <laughs> we we made a couple of announcements around reducing incarceration, uh, which are pretty basic uh, for reconciliation, because there are no provincial halfway houses in Manitoba right now. So um, uh, there are a number of uh, and so people are being basically abandoned on the street straight out of the prison system. They end up going to Main Street. They end up being caught in breach. They end up being rearrested. And huge numbers of them are Indigenous. Uh, it's, we, we can and should be breaking this cycle just by having support for these people once they go to prison. So um, those, are, those are a couple of the big things. I mean, a lot of them are Indigenous, but um, and tackling homelessness more quickly. Like these are things, it's all, to me, it's about stopping the bleeding. Um, <laughs> that's really what has to happen. We have to start rebuilding these systems right away. So, you know, one of the interesting for those of us on the outside and, uh, you know, frightening things for those of you on the inside uh, being a political leader is that every time you run in an election, you know, you're facing two or three watershed moments in your career. You know, you have to win your own seat to maintain legitimacy, to, to continue yep. to lead the party. You have to lead your party to a certain result. Yeah. To, to support the viability of your leadership. Um, so uh, do you, in your mind, do you have like a, a minimum standard or a target that this is what I have to achieve in this election so that I can, you know, look to the membership of the Manitoba Liberal Party and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay on as leader. Again, this is a... This I don't is, think about yeah. that at all. I'll be honest, I don't <clears throat> think about that at all. Not at all. I really, no. It's like... I don't think about it in those. I don't think about it in those terms. I have to do everything I can to win as many seats as I possibly can, right? And if and if it and you don't know, like we, nobody can tell me. None of us know how many seats anyone is going to win. No, <laughs> right? No, we nobody, established that in our prognostic. Yeah, panel. no, no, yeah. and it's and uh, so it's my job. Just uh, some of it is that one of the things, one of the lessons I took away from when I ran for leader in 2013. I was crushed by it because I started to look... Somebody... I, I listened to too many people who told me that I, I was going to win. And then when I didn't, it was crushing because I had started to look past that point. So part of this is purely a question of focus for me. Mm -hmm. of, I can't... I cannot worry about that other stuff because my the entire point of what I'm trying to do is get the best possible result on October 4th. Right. By October 4th. On October 3rd for October 4th. That's 
and then we figure stuff out. Like mm-hmm. it's the same thing when people talk about, you know, uh, would I, that's why I don't talk about coalitions. That's why we don't talk about, or like, would we, those are the, those are some of the things. But I think the important thing is when we're, it's actually more that <laughs> because we will be able to say uh, if we if we pick up seats and if the other parties don't do well and look and I think we can pick up a lot of seats quite frankly um, depending on events but uh, yeah it means that there's a bunch of stuff that we can we can actually get done so but our so quite frankly both our our ideas are worth paying attention to I, I got to say the um, you know when we we have thought about it and we've talked about it uh, but it the mathematics is tantalizing right like so overall when we did our you know, we had Chris Adams and, and Curtis Brown, and we yep. talk, and we all did our forecasts. So really, like, so you guys have got three seats. If you hold, and let's say you were to win three others, yeah, okay, all right, that almost guarantees a minority yep. mandate. Like, it, 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 I won't, I'm not prepared to say which party would would uh, have the right to govern. Neither are they. Yeah, no, I know, but it, like, is you know, I gotta say. Because it's so odd, right? Like the NDP haven't really been out of power long enough, you know, and they had yeah. such an awful end to their last, you know, their yeah. last term in government. The Tories haven't been in power long enough, uh, you know, but you know, Brian Pallister seemed to be yeah. on a highway to hell, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a sort of, you know, macro strategy for the party. So, like, it's a weird election. Very, yeah. Uh, but, you know, like you guys obviously, like there must be an incredible sense of expectation that, you know, it would be great if you did Sharon Carstairs and won 20 seats, but you could really mess things up with three more seats. Yep. Yeah. Mayhem. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, but part of the whole point is to disrupt things. I don't think, but in the best possible way. I, I, I'm really, um, when you look at what the NDP is proposing, it is, I mean, they've they promised ERs in eight years. They promised to solve homelessness in eight years. You know, are there, I don't know. Are they just getting really, really ready for the 2031 election? Or are they actually ready to, to run? I mean, talk talk about a government waiting, waiting forever, Dan. <laughs> Sorry, that's my no, terrible joke. No, but no, but, no, but it is that, but honestly, if you look at the NDP's platform, they are giving people very, very little to vote for them, especially people who are looking for change, anybody who's progressive. Like just saying, well, we're going to keep, we're going to keep uh, the property tax rebates after they spent months months uh, talking about how terrible it was and how, you know, how can you send checks to billionaires and now they're going to do it, except they're not going to send checks, though. They're doing a direct deposit. Big savings. So we, we, we should be saving. I mean, that's a, that's a fair bit of savings in stamps. There's a couple of million dollars in envelopes A couple million and dollars in, sa- in envelopes and stamps and stuffing, yeah. yeah but, uh, but I mean, look, I'm a big supporter of the post office, so I don't have a problem <laughs> sending checks out. But the, no, but it is, but it's this ridiculous idea that they're keeping the status quo and they really aren't. I mean, that it actually is making it impossible to believe the NDP can do anything because if they say, if they're like, let's say, let's believe them. If somebody tells you they're, they're going to do this. Let's believe them. They're going to keep that budget. They can't do stuff. Okay. Devil's advocate though. If let's say you're, you know, running in the polls the way that the NDP are. So you're going to enter the election maybe st- statistically or within the margin of error tied uh, province-wide or slightly behind, yep. uh, and but dominating in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, like, based on the bulletin board material that the Tories have put up, you're not, gonna, you're not going to be cautious and let the Tories hang themselves, uh, like, on their own record? 
Like, I'm, and I'm not saying that rhetorically. I'm saying you, you don't see that as, as potentially a viable strategy? Um, I've seen the NDP blow it over and over doing this. That's the thing, right? Actually, starting in 2014 with the, yeah, they, they've been sitting on, they're trying to sit on a lead. Like, they, they scored in the first two minutes. They scored a couple goals yeah. in the first two minutes, and then they've been trying to sit on a lead, and they, they keep yeah. doing this. Uh, what I've learned, one of the major things I've learned to do is to keep taking risks. So yeah. you have to take calculated risks, um, but you have to take, but but real risks. And some that, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I've sometimes, sometimes you have to risk, to win everything, you have to risk everything. So when I ran in St. Boniface, I was risking everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was my leadership. That was my leadership and possibly the entire party on the line in 2018. Yeah, in top so, yeah. flight football, they call it parking the bus. Yeah. So you, you believe the NDP have parked the bus okay, and are, yeah. are only playing defense right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that's it. Is that if you look at their announcements, they're really threadbare. And there's, look, and, and about two-thirds of them are, are cribbed from us. I mean, the, we, there, was an, there was an announcement. We came out with an announcement, um, another, another crime announcement, because it's critical to, we don't have enough shelters for women, for example, right? For, we have no emergency shelters in Manitoba at all for women fleeing domestic violence. Um, and we have no provincial halfway houses. So those were a couple of things we announced. So we said, okay, well, we're going to have, they they duplicated our call on, on searching the landfill. After we did it, they also said, okay, well, we're going to create these shelters in Winnipeg, Brandon, and Thompson after we had made the exactly same commitment. So they've actually been, the NDP's, which they've always done to some degree. They, they're they they're not just playing wait and see. They're saying wait and see what the Liberals say, and then we'll say it too. Dugald, thank you very much uh, for making time. Thank you. And, and we do say this to everybody who comes on the podcast during an election. Best of luck uh, in the upcoming, well, not quite 20, yeah, it could be 28 days or so in yeah. in the future of your of your party's uh, yeah. career. Yeah. yeah. Thanks very good. much. Thank you, actually. Thank you. All right, we're back. Uh, what a great interview with uh, Liberal leader Dugald Lamont. You know, uh, when you talk to Dugald, you when you consider the by-election performances they put in, um, when you consider um, the uh, the you know some of the more ambiguous issues of this campaign, the Conservatives trying to riff off Wab Canoe's Indigenous uh, uh, background. Uh, the Conservatives and their austerity agenda, you know, it's not hard to imagine, uh, you know, people saying, you know, like, you know, maybe we should uh, we should uh, try a Liberal candidate. Now, whether or not that can galvanize in any one riding, but even if they were to hold their three seats, I mean, certainly if they were to win five or six seats, it almost guarantees a minority parliament. And with and Dugald Lamont, it then becomes a central figure in the uh, agenda of of whichever uh, party it has the minority mandate and there you know it's i think a sign of people seeing relevancy within a party is when people who otherwise would find jobs in other industries and have a sense of celebrity and so on start to look to a party and say well i'm going to run as a you know so-called star candidate and I mean, very famously, very famous Winnipeg Blue Bomber, Willard Reeves, 
uh, is running out there in Fort White. And anyone driving through Fort White these days can see that uh, they're they're hard pressing. They see that seat as available and they see that seat as a possibility. Um, but also the NDP seeing liberal seats as possibilities. I happen to be in River Heights and uh, NDP candidate Mike Morose is all out, uh, 100% all out. Uh, almost every day I seem to be getting some kind of leaflet uh, they see the seat held by longtime liberal John Gerard as available or certainly within reach. Uh, and so that's interesting. I mean, you're seeing that sort of the liberal NDP battle over what potentially could be uh, the, the government of Manitoba. And um, I think uh, people need to understand, and this is what makes the liberal narrative so interesting, is that um, it's going to be a tight race. And by tight, that means tight races riding by riding with a few hundred votes here and a few hundred votes there really making the difference. Um, and, you know, I am starting to see more and more similarities to 1999, where, uh, you know, there was a 16 vote swing between the Conservatives and the NDP. You know, the uh, NDP went up by nine, the Conservatives went down by two, the NDP also stole a couple of seats from the Liberals. And, but it, what was interesting was that in terms of the popular vote, uh, NDP only got 44.5%. Uh, the Tories were 41%. So there wasn't a huge vote. There was only 18,000 votes that separated the two parties province-wide, and yet a 16-vote swing in terms of representation. And yes, for those of you who want electoral reform, that is an argument for electoral reform. I'm not ignoring you, so don't come after me on social media, Twitter, or X, or whatever it's called now. Anyways, that's as nerdy as you get, but absolutely shows very stark uh, the the role of how voting in Manitoba is. I mean, it really is a place in which a vote matters. Uh, with that being said, we want to wrap up this week's podcast and, uh, you know, one in a series of of uh, conversations with leaders and members that were working within the election. I mean, certainly we'll be talking about it again. Uh, but for anyone who wants to find more coverage on the uh, the Manitoba election, uh, we have an extensive page series of uh, of features that are at the Free Press website. We can encourage more in this world of meta cutting off uh, access to public news, legitimate news, vetted news uh, to support our colleagues, the free press, also our colleagues in other media across the country. Uh, perhaps there's no more important time to support media than right now. Uh, go to directly to uh, websites, buy a newspaper, support local media. That's how we're going to save legitimate media in this country. So we encourage everybody to do that. Um, and speaking of, a huge thanks to our wonderful colleagues over in CJNU and our producer, Adam, uh, who's back yet again for another season of uh, Negon on the Lone Ranger and all of our great colleagues at the Free Press, uh, Wendy Sawatsky, Paul Simon, the editor, uh, who put up this and uh, put up this podcast and put up with us. Yes, put up with us. But then again, we are the content gift that keeps on giving. That's what we are. Thanks to everybody. And rest in peace, Bob Barker. Rest in peace, Bob Barker. Bob Barker.